Hey, Sam Mulberry here. It's been a few weeks since I've posted anything to the live from AC Second Feed. Um, we are almost to the end of summer. Uh, our semester starts in about a week and a half. And once the semester starts, we'll be dropping more regular live pods into the feed, um, hopefully for sure once a week and, and maybe a couple times a week, uh, depending on kind of availability and who we can get in the room. But to, to wrap up this summer, I want to drop the last four autobiography podcasts um, over, the next, uh, over the next week or so. So um, we've been revisiting this um, series that I did back in, uh, t- back in 2014 and 2015, um, <clears throat> and the podcast that I w- I'm posting today is one that I, um, it's a very special podcast to me. Uh, it's an interview I did with Professor Stacy Hunter-Hecht, who I think on the podcast I talked about as sort of my Bethel big sister. Um, and for those of you who know Stacy, Stacy passed away in um, in December of 2015, um, and it's really hard to uh, to go back for me to go back and listen to this episode. But I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to sit down with Stacy um, and to listen to her story and talk with her um, about her story. So Stacy is just one of my favorite people that I've um, that I've worked with at Bethel. She's one of my favorite people that I've met in my life. Um, it's just a really, really fun and important person to me. So uh, it's really my pleasure to to share this um, to share this with you. So I hope you enjoy this interview um, and enjoy this opportunity to, to meet um, someone who was a, a very, very special person to all of us. Welcome back to the Autobiography Podcast. I'm Sam Mulberry. It's been a while since we recorded one of these. Um, my guest today is Stacy Hunter-Heck from the Political Science Department. Uh, she's somebody who I've known since before I started teaching at Bethel. Um, she began teaching when I was a student here, probably during my sophomore or junior year. I didn't know her really well um, while I was a student, uh, but she's somebody who, as I began teaching here, uh, I grew really close to and um, is sort of a really important person in terms of kind of shaping my career. Uh, so it was really fun to sit down with her uh, and talk about her intellectual autobiography. So without further ado, here's my interview with Stacy hunter Act. Thanks for being willing to do yep. this. This is really just a conversation. Like there's no big agenda, even though I have like this page of notes okay. and questions. Okay. But... And do you edit these down? Uh, no, I don't actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, it's funny. I mean, before we started recording, um, you were talking about how nobody watches long form interviews. And actually really, I really like listening to long form yeah. interviews. Yeah. So like whatever we're talking about, that's what the show okay. is. So, okay. Um, You're Terry Gross. Sure. Okay. Sure. Um, and this is fresh air. <laughs> So my guest today is is uh, Stacy Hunter Hecht, who um, I, I I wrote down a list of questions, but I also wrote down a list of just um, it was going to be words, but it's sort of phrases and things like this in terms of how I think about uh, how I think about Stacy. Um, you're somebody who I've worked with since my very beginnings here. I think you were I think I remember you a little bit from when I was a student here because yeah. we just sort of passed just barely there. I remember you having been in one of Kathy Nevin's classes your senior year and Kathy was my faculty mentor my first year at Bethel so I yeah I have a vague recollection of you that yes, that year yeah yeah so so the the first thing that I wrote on my list and 
I really do mean this as a compliment. Okay. Um, is that you're, I think of you in some way, I think of you in lots of different ways, but in one of the, the big ways where it's sort of nearest and dearest to my heart is you're sort of my Bethel big sister. Uh, I say that because like, I don't have, um, I don't have a big sister. I don't have a big sister. This is true. <laughs> um, I have an older brother. I come from a very small family right. and, um, uh, my mom's side of the family, everybody lived far away. So we didn't really see them. My dad can't come from a really big family, but we didn't really see them. So when I was growing up, the people who were my parents' friends, those are the people who were functionally my aunts and uncles right, and my grandparents. Right. And so I realized that in my own life, without real, without meaning to, like I kind of craft families right, out of right. you know cobble them together. And definitely when I came to Bethel, like you you functioned as that for Aww, me. So that's well, so that you're. I think really that is important. a very high compliment. Thank yes, you. Yes. Thank you. Um, it's very kind. Um, you were also uh, the one of the original hosts of our of our podcast i was back in the day yes and i think you coined you actually coined the term cwc the radio show i remember when uh <laughs> we were in a meeting uh in a summer meeting and bob kistler was talking about what like actually like what does the word podcast mean i think is what he was talking about and you i was sitting behind you and you turned around in your desk and said so it could be like cwc the radio show so instead of paying attention to bob i was cutting up in class that's right that's great but but it, it, nice you know, big sister you picked for yourself. That's right. That's the <laughs> kind of big sister I need, though. Is the kind who will talk to me during class. Oh, um, so what I really want to do is just sort of talk, kind of do the uh, the intellectual autobiography. I, I, okay. you, I mean, you have uh, you have roots in CWC as well. You probably did these in CWC summer meetings where we just kind of talked about um, it's been a long time. Kind of how we ended up here, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I'm I'm interested in. Um, both in the the really intellectual way in terms of thinking about college and graduate school and things like that, but uh, also as a parent, I'm uh, one of my favorite questions to ask people is like, my son is nine and my daughter is seven. Like, what were you like as a seven year old or a nine year old? Like, if we if we could hop in the wayback wow. machine and meet Stacy, you know, wow. at that age, what would who would we find? Wow. So that's your opening question, huh? Sure. Okay. Huh. I was actually just thinking about this because um, my daughter's twelve and we've got um. It's interesting to have kids at that age because you're, you're starting to sort of see who they are. You know, I think when that, that late elementary school, they're really starting to kind of give some clues as to who they who they are. And uh, you, you think about yourself uh, at that same stage. Um, and I, um, with, without oversharing, I, I did not have a happy childhood. I had a, um, a pretty sad childhood. Uh, my folks split up when I was pretty, pretty little. And um, I was the oldest of two Um children. I have a younger sister. And, um, so I, I was, uh, I was a pretty anxious kid. Um, and, uh, and those anxieties were kind of, um, externally induced in a lot of respects and, um, came from a family where we didn't talk about what was happening. You know, we just kind of stiff upper lip and pretend it wasn't happening. Um, so, and as the oldest, I think I was probably expected to do that. I was, I was very mature for my age always. Um, I was a reader. Um, I was much, I think I've always been an extrovert. I was certainly an extrovert as a very young child, but by the time I got to that stage of the game, seven, eight, nine, ten, I'm much more, much more introverted. I think because of the sort of sadness in our in our family, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and you know that was back in the days of old fashioned divorce. I admit you didn't see the parent that left, um, and so that that was really what my um, that 
childhood in that stage was like. So, yeah, so I was a reader. I was a thinker. I was always a good student. Um, I, I, but I was old, old beyond my years really, mm-hmm. really fast. Well, I mean, what, when you think about yourself as a reader, like what, mm-hmm. were, you, what were you reading? Uh, Victorian children's literature. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was Little Women and Dickens and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I, I like American. I think in many respects I'm sort of deeply, deeply American. Um, I... Um, my, most of my um, European ancestors came here uh, a long, long time ago, some of them going back to the 17th century. So um, so I, th- I think I'm deeply, deeply American. So I resonated with all those American stories. Um, and, uh, oh, I love the Little House books and mm-hmm. all that stuff. I mean, it's pretty, pretty typical, I guess, in terms of that. But uh, in eighth grade, I wrote my, you know, my bibliography project was we sort of had to read the corpus of one of the one of the writers and i did it on louise may alcott i mean i loved i loved that stuff so yeah so i heavily 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 into those kinds of tales sure. and you were growing up in pennsylvania right? mm-hmm. yeah i grew up in western pennsylvania in pittsburgh pennsylvania my father's family had been there for um generations that you probably know the pew charitable mm-hmm. trusts that name rings a bell usually from pennsylvania and the pew um pew money uh founded not just the pew trust but also grove city college which is in uh, sort of northwestern, west central Pennsylvania, um, and um, that's where my family went to school. I'm the only member of my nuclear family that did not go to college there. Um, but my father's mother's family, um, there was there was some amount of oil in northwestern Pennsylvania, and that's where the Pew Charitable Trust money came from. And my father's mother's family um, hid some oil there too, not as much as the Pews, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, but they, uh, yeah. So they they had settled there quite a long time ago, and. Um, and lived north of the city, and my um, my father's father's family uh, were were in the city more. Um, so that's where that's where I grew up. My mother's uh, family is from Eastern Pennsylvania. My mother was born um, just outside of um, Philadelphia. The sort of ancestral homeland there is uh, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Okay. So yeah, so that's where they landed. So culturally, I'm probably as much an Eastern Pennsylvanian as I am a Western Pennsylvanian because it was really my mom and my mom's family that was sort of setting the cultural mm-hmm. cultural tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how about high school then? I mean, what was what was high school like as you as that that sort of young reader, kind of old old beyond old your soul, years? old yeah, soul, yeah. Uh-huh. Was- yeah. Well, it continued. Um, I uh, um, I I went to a fairly small public high school. My my grandfather had been involved, and in, you know, my grandparents are greatest generation folks. They were actually older than the. Folks that fought in World War II, for the most part, my my family's done a great job of missing wars. Um, so uh, my grandparents <laughs> it's a were good survival. Yeah, it is. It is. It is just a very Darwinian at some level. My uh, my grandfather was a little too old for World War II. My my father would have probably been drafted in Vietnam, but um, was in the Air, Air National Guard. Um, uh, we've also missed the waves of American feminism, which is another interesting piece of all this. But. Uh, uh, yeah, so um, so the high school I went to was actually the only non-consolidated school district in Allegheny County. Allegheny County is the county that Pittsburgh is located in. And much has happened here in the Midwest where these sort of small towns would kind of create these hyphenated school districts with multiple mm-hmm. towns. That was happening um, mostly along the steel towns along the Monongahela River in Pittsburgh in the 1970s as the steel mills were closing down. Um, we were north of the city. Uh, where things were a little bit better, but these were the executives that worked for U.S. Steel and Westinghouse and Alcoa, those big companies that were dependent to some extent on the steel industry. And um, so uh, when this uh, township incorporated as a school district, they uh, were able to sustain things because it was wealthy enough and never had to um, 
consolidate with another township and to this day haven't. But it was a small, very small public high school that had an excellent academic reputation still does to this day. So I graduated with about 225 um, students. Um, some of the first AP courses were kind of online really? back then. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I was, you know, I was in them, uh, and uh, academics were really, really uh, important to me the whole way, the whole way through, for sure. Um, social studies was important, was probably my favorite subject, but I liked math and science and um, English. I, I and graduating, I got the best English student award, and I think they thought I'd go on to major in English literature or something like that. What did you, what did you like, as a you know kind of through those high school years mm-hmm. as you projected yourself forward what did you imagine yourself i thought i'd be an attorney okay yeah from about eighth grade on i was pretty much convinced that that was what i was gonna and why is that gonna do um uh, you know it's for a really stupid reason actually we had a we had a guy who was a um i remember we had career day in eighth grade and they they kind of sectioned us off based on what kind of student we were i mean it was very much a meritocracy and um they had one of the kids whose dad was a doctor came in and talked to you know my group and said well if you're a smart person basically the two things you can do or be a doctor or a lawyer. And, and of course, you know, this is an environment where there were lots of engineers and lots of, lots of lawyers and lots of doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it was sort of like, these were professional things that a lot of the folks I went to um, high school with um, were um, Italian or Eastern European immigrant fa- families that were two or three generations beyond the mill. Mm-hmm. So these were folks that whose dads or grandfathers probably worked in the steel mills and that wasn't my socialization experience at all um but um but that was their story so so it was the kind of advice you would expect from someone um like that so i sort of thought well i you know i really don't want to be a doctor so i think i'll be be a lawyer and i my my come from a tribe of educators my mother's a um a school teacher her father was a college professor my mother's older brother was a school principal most of my cousins are teachers my my dad um had a law degree but ended up being a administrator in higher education for most of his career. So, um, so I, I just knew I didn't want to be in education. So, right. So, so I presume you went to college with that goal yep, in mind? Absolutely. Pre-law okay. was kind of where I, where I was at. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, where did that start to shift or, or? Well, I got, I got really lucky. I, um, in retrospect, I, I made my college choice for some dumb reasons too. Um, I, um, I, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny because like you don't seem like Everything I know about you is the type of per- like I think about when Rosie was like going to elementary school like all like you're, you're the type of person like who researches things a great deal and you know all the information. right so it's funny that well I think I, I, I feel my, I'm much more empowered as an adult than I ever felt as a teenager I mean and for some of those circumstantial reasons that mm-hmm. we talked about I I was there to kind of keep the peace and try to um, try to not screw things up for people um, and so that that was very much the motif of that stage of my life. So I, um, I applied to the, um, to Penn state. I applied to, um, uh, Georgetown university, uh, and I applied to, um, Bucknell and then withdrew my, uh, application. I, I mostly, I knew that the money was going to be a huge deal and it was going to be a huge deal be- between my recently divorced parents and my mother was always nervous about money and rightly so she was a school teacher. Um, so she had an education, but was always concerned about about money. Mm-hmm. And, um, I got a full ride at Penn state. And so I went to Penn state. Um, so, and that was pretty much the end of it. Uh, but that was sort of a dumb thing to do in, in many regards. I mean, I, I, it, yeah, I probably should have explored some other institutions more seriously. And, um, and I wish I could have been free from that concern at 18. Um, how it's, it's actually interesting though. How crucial do you think 
and I'm not saying how crucial do you think that 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 question of where you go is mm-hmm, generally, mm-hmm. but specifically for you because you yep. know yourself, you yep. know what you were like, the things yep. you were good at. Like, how crucial was that decision? I mean, would would it make a huge difference had you not gone to Penn State and gone somewhere? Oh, else? I think so. I think so. I um. Mostly in terms of socialization processes. I mean, I, I'm I'm concerned about things like um, student life uh, and and have been the whole way through. I was an RA in college, um, and I think that the the socialization processes that surround. I I went to school with a, uh, to college with a lot of people like the people I went to high school with who were going to be engineers and second generation college. You know that that kind of stuff, and um, and they were good good folks, and um, but but they weren't going to be doing the same things that I ultimately was going to be doing with my life. Um, when I got, to, I really feel like I didn't meet my people till I got to graduate school. And I feel like had I chosen a different undergraduate institution, I might've met them hmm. sooner and that would have been good. But, but the, the good news is that I did get, I did get lucky. I was part of the university scholars program, which again was heavily populated with engineers, uh, rather than, uh, liberal arts types. Um, but I had a wonderful, wonderful undergraduate advisor. Um, and he, um, he really, um, profoundly shaped my, uh, my journey, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, really challenged me about the law school thing. And I think saw in me someone that, um, was sort of deeply analytical and sensitive and, um, and liked the world of ideas and, uh, and, and genuinely loved people and, and that I wasn't going to be happy in that kind of a, of an environment. Um, so he, he started in on me, uh, right from the, right from the beginning and, and a kind of a playful teasing, uh, sure. way, but he had a big wall in his office, a cork board where he had the, uh, drop slips of everybody that dropped their pre-law majors and transferred into straight political science. So there was, <laughs> so this, that was this, his mission. this wall of shame. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, and, and they sent people on to plenty of really good law schools and I was admitted to a couple of them, but, um, but, I had an internship in between junior and senior years of uh, of college, uh, working for a big white shoe law firm in uh, in Pittsburgh, and uh, and I just knew it wasn't for me. I just um, I did I did a great job. They wanted me to come back. I, I they they loved me because I was a super cheap paralegal, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't have to pay me what you paid a paralegal, and uh, and I and I worked really hard and I did a good job. But um, I I mostly there were two. There was only one female partner in the firm at the time. And there was another one who was uh, we thought about to make partners. At, turned out she she didn't um but i was in the litigation department and um i I couldn't figure out who the good guys were because we represented uh asbestos manufacturing corporations that had now gone defunct um and we represented the insurance companies and insured them and on the other side were these guys that had been diagnosed with um, asbestos related illnesses but in a kind of sketchy way there were union members who had been sort of wheeled through a portable x-ray machine outside the union hall and um and it tripped the statute of limitations and conveniently there was a lawyer there to take their case and so we had guys settling for 10 or fifteen thousand dollars in their 40s and you know who knew if they were really going to get sick or not mm-hmm. um so i couldn't figure out who the good guys were in that it was pretty clear it wasn't the insurance companies um because they just wanted to you know get people to receive the least money possible and i and i, and I was pretty sure the unions weren't clean on this one either because what if these guys got really sick at some point in the future and 10 grand was going to buy them a new truck or something, but it wasn't going to, wasn't going to get their kids through school if they died from asbestosis or mesothelioma. So, um, so that was really morally problematic for me. And, and then I just saw the lifestyle stuff in this, this one woman partner, she went away on vacation that summer. And I remember her administrative assistant just 
Oh, that was back in the days when faxes were really hot. And she was <laughs> she was at a beach location and was just faxing Reem or upon Reem upon Reem. I remember the administrative assistant's you know cubicle looked like a bunker because of those it was expanding paper files. You know mm-hmm. that, uh, that kind of rust colored cardboard and they were just sort of stacked all up this outside wall of the cubicle. And I thought I I can't live my life that way. I I need to have some kind of balance that's not evident in this line of work so so yeah so was the was the natural move then to say i'm going to go to graduate school in political science or was were there other paths you were considering at that point you know when i did my undergraduate thesis um which i did on um state higher education funding in pennsylvania there have been a kind of an interesting move that subsequently some states have adopted although they've not proved to be terrifically popular it was a, a tuition challenge grant where the um the state um challenge the universities to keep their annual tuition increases to a, a certain percentage rate in order to ensure the appropriation for the university. Pennsylvania is kind of a unique funding structure. Um, Penn State is a state-related institution, which means that it has a kind of separate governance structure, um, not owned by the state, but receives a certain percentage of its operating budget, um, not nearly as big as it is here in Minnesota. Um, from the state government. So I did my thesis on that, and I interviewed um, state legislators and some state government officials. And I remember when I um, interviewed the state budget director um, in uh, in Harrisburg that I remember thinking, you know, this could be kind of a cool job. Um, and so there were certainly moments where I thought working in state government might be interesting. I, I never had any interest in elective uh, office. Why I, is that? Um, I don't think I have the guts for it. Um, to I take things too hard. I I I couldn't stand the the criticism and the ad hominem attacks. It's just too. Well, actually, this is the, the question I have just because you teach political yeah, science yeah, majors as yeah. well. Like, like I just assumed every political science major had a phase where that's what they imagined. Oh, you know, I've do. I've been president of everything I've been a part of. You know, I mean that that's yeah. definitely true. I mean, I was. Um, I was sort of the de facto president of the student council in eighth grade because the kid that was the uh, football hero type um, sort of abdicated mid-year. Like it was, he was like electable, t- but not he, very he, yeah, he job. got elected. He beat beat the pants off me in the election, but then he like re- kind of refused to govern. So, uh, so they, yeah, <laughs> um, and then you know I was always in student council and stuff in uh, in high school and college and stuff. But then um, it, we again meeting my people. Uh, when I got to graduate school, I was elected president of the graduate political science graduate students and we called it pfl was president for life uh because once you were elected you basically had to do it until you finished it was a minor incentive to finishing your dissertation um but uh uh yeah so and i've been president of faculty senate here i'm department chair yeah i always i always end up in those in those spots but uh but they're always you prefer to have you prefer to have greatness thrust upon you. Yes, than right. Than to, to seek it out, probably. Yeah. No. I honestly, the more the more you study this stuff, the more you can't imagine why anybody in their right mind would ever run for public office. Uh, it's just, um, it's a. Uh, uh, in this democracy, we've really created a thank a thankless job for public officials, and um, you know, you think about the a degree of egocentrism. Um, and I say that even more than narcissism, but the, but the, the, the sort of sense of yourself that you have to have in order to, uh, you know, ask people for the kind of money it takes to, mm-hmm. to do this is just shocking. So now I um, I knew I didn't have the guts for for uh, for elective office uh, pretty pretty early on, um, but but those jobs working in the bureaucracy. My my father was actually um, commissioner for higher education in Pennsylvania. Um, 
for a, a number of years. And, and those kind of gigs, that, those were kind of interesting to me. Um, uh, you know, I could certainly uh, imagine, I certainly could have imagined it 22 uh, mm-hmm. doing something like that but but the career path for that was so obscure right that right. I, I didn't pursue it in any way yeah yeah so um, so Jim Eisenstein my undergrad advisor um, had been on me about graduate school uh, and they were, he said you know I think you'd be a great college professor I think this is what you're kind of cut out to do and um, a couple other faculty in the department had said the same thing to me and um, so I took them seriously. And so I, I applied to both graduate school and law school. Was that something that was in your head before they said it and you uh, needed them to confirm that? Or was it when they said that, was it, I hadn't really thought about that, but that's the direction I could go. That, yeah, I, it wasn't like, huh, I could be that, you know. So I don't I don't feel like they were um, igniting some unimagined okay. path. Um as I said, everybody in my family is an educator, so sure. staying in the academy was sort of like staying at home in sure. some respects. So, was your was your view at that time? I mean, because you were at a place like Penn State, was your view at that time of a college professor different than what the actuality of your life is? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Because I went to Bethel, so my sense of what a college professor is is pretty close to what it is because that's I was around people who were doing that. Yeah, no. Um, it would have been very, very different. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, state college is weird. I mean, it's a, it's a big, um, you know, you get this gigantic university in a very, very small town. Um, so people, people did have lives there, which was nice. You know, people were in the community. Mm-hmm. M- many of the folks in the political science department had, had roles on the city council, active on the school board, active in local, you know, sort of PC justice stuff, which, uh, which was cool. And, um, uh, but I, I also knew I didn't want to be in a, a college town. I, that, that held no appeal whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad had been at the university of Pittsburgh and to the extent that I'd been aware of that, um, that seemed like more of a model. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. So I, I guess I envisioned myself at a big university, um, because that, that was really what I had experienced. I'd never been to a, you know, small college. So I didn't really know what that was, what that was like. And I guess I didn't really know what I would end up, um, doing you know i i knew i was interested in research i knew i was interested in in teaching i liked liked working with people i liked the people part of mm-hmm. of those jobs and so um but i guess i sort of thought well i'll just be the one at the big university who you know is the is the beloved teacher you sure, know somehow sure. i yeah right so so did you go right from undergrad to graduate school yeah. okay well i actually i graduated a semester early from my undergrad because again dumb decision uh but um i um uh, because I guess I was with all these engineering students and kind of adopted their mindset. It was like, okay, well, this is now the path of least resistance to get an undergraduate degree. And I, I, I enjoyed much of my college experience. I don't want to make it sound like it was um, treacherous or a drag or mm-hmm. anything. But um, but I, uh, I did not allow much time for intellectual exploration. I was sort of gunning for it. Well, I mean that makes sense, though. I mean, when you because when you talk about about graduate school, you talk okay, that's where I met my people. Yeah, and had, yeah. Had you been, and, and I guess that maybe goes back to the question I asked before. Had you met those people as an undergrad? That's that. Oh yeah, yeah. Probably would have been very different. Yeah, I mean, and I didn't, I, I, uh, I didn't hate the people I was with. I didn't, I, but I, I just never felt I wasn't part of the Greek culture, which was huge at sure. Penn State. That was not my thing at all. Um, I. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was very much that kind of big university popularity contest, f- heavy football culture kind sure. of stuff, and and that 
I tried. I tried to fit in, uh, but right. it, it wasn't. It wasn't who I was. So I really, found, I mean, I found the people that I liked best in the honors program in the political science department, and mm-hmm. I, had, I had some good friends there who I still have, still have now, and um, and then people I lived with, you know, and and um, I lived with people very different from from me, and um, and that was okay, mm-hmm. uh, and I and I cared about them deeply. I'm still in touch with many of them. So, but I um I had AP credit coming in. Uh, which was a weird thing back in the day. Uh, and uh, that coupled with, um, a, you know, usually 18 credit semesters, and I was able to graduate in three and a half years. So I graduated midway through what was my senior year. So what did you do between? Waited tables at TGI Fridays because it paid more than going back to the law firm that I'd worked for after my junior year. They invited me to come back and work for them. And I'm, I did the calculus of how much it was going to cost to commute into Pittsburgh and, uh, and concluded I would make more money waiting tables at TGI Fridays. So how was that job? I loved it. I really did. I loved waiting tables. It was a good job. I, I worked with folks. That I, I mean, it was it was one of those uh, early adult jobs that you think, thank God I won't have to do this for the rest of my life. Right. Um, and... Um, but if you can, imbr- but if you can have that mindset and then embrace them while you're doing it, those can be fun. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and it, this is 1989, 90, so we were in a recession. So there were lots of recent college grads that were working there. Um, so I, I, for the most part, I worked with some really really fun people who were kind of in the same spot I was. I mean, I was I was marking time till I. Mm-hmm. Went to grad school. Were um, you already into a program and just it hadn't started yet? Uh, yeah. So, uh, so I graduated in December. Started working at Fridays in January, and um, probably those acceptances, you know, came in February. I think I got most of those while I was back home. I remember getting a telephone call in the kitchen of my the house I grew up in. So, yeah, um, and um, yeah, so those came in, and I had to kind of make a decision. I came out. I came to Minnesota actually in March. I remember I came out to visit the campus. So yeah, so those decisions were getting. So made what then. were the options that were kind of laid out in front of you at that point? Uh, well, I was admitted to. Duke Law School, and I only applied to two, Duke and the University of Pittsburgh Law School, um, and got into both of those. And then, um, they again, this was sort of a Penn State problem, but because they weren't used to having a bunch of students that were interested in graduate school, they didn't kind of know how to manage that application process terrifically well. So unfortunately, what happened was there were three of us that were interested in going to grad school that year, and we zeroed each other out. Hmm. at the other institutions. Again, we were all competitive, um, right. uh, and our numbers were all real similar. But um, because we basically had the same story, um, and we were applying to very, very small programs, wherever wherever there were two of us that applied, only one of us got in. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I got in, I applied to um, Princeton, Cornell, Johns Hopkins, MIT, and the University of Minnesota. They were the top five programs in political theory at the time, which is what I thought I wanted to study. Minnesota was number three in the rankings. And um, and I got into Minnesota. Hopkins was probably number two. Uh, and MIT, which is probably number five. So I got like two, three, and five. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't get into Cornell or Princeton. And my mother's family now lives in central New Jersey. So I think I sort of was really hoping I'd get into Princeton as a place to, to go. But um, but one of the other students got, got in there. The bad news was one of the students got shut out completely, mm-hmm. um, which was really, really sad. He subsequently, he sat out a year and reapplied and, um, and actually is probably amongst the three of us now, by the standards of the academy, the most successful. He's a professor at Columbia University. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, just goes to show, <laughs> right? So, yeah, so, um, so those are the three options. And... Um, the more I learned about Minnesota, I like the Minnesota model. Political science has been a wealthy department in um, 
the College of Liberal Arts and at the U of M and been a well-known department for really since the end of World War II, really, mm-hmm. really a significant department in political science. And their model, um, because they're a wealthy department, is that they admit a very small class and they fund everybody. Hmm. So everybody gets um, a full ride for three years. And then um, you get thrown in the hopper for a university-wide fellowship, which I which I won. Um, so I had full years of full, four full years of funding coming into it. So um, that was pretty much a a no brainer. And I liked the non competitive nature. In a lot of graduate programs, you kind of have to compete to be a satellite of a star. And um, and if you don't win, then uh, you know, good luck. Um, and that's not how Minnesota operated at all. It was very much you know we've committed. To to educating you because you're here and um, and we expect that you'll be here at least four years. And so that was, I liked that. I liked mm-hmm. the non-competitive, you know, very competitive on the front end, obviously, sure, sure, but, um, yeah. but, but once you were through the door um, and I like, I like that. That was, that was a vibe I liked. So what did you study at, at, at Minnesota? Um, I, uh, well, they also take a very comprehensive approach. That was the other thing about the Minnesota model. You know, my, my friends in graduate school were taking uh, comprehensive exams on the presidency and I was taking comprehensive exams on American politics. So, um, so the idea at Minnesota was you take a lot of coursework for a long time and we expect you to be uh, really master the breadth of the field. Um, so, um, they required us to take, uh, seminars in three of the four subfields in political science. So I took... Uh, some you know the, the core seminars as they called them in um, theory, American politics, and comparative politics, um, and then continued with um, you know additional coursework in political theory and American politics, um, and uh, and examined in political theory and American politics. And did you did you do any teaching while you were there? Yeah, the rule in the political science department again, an unusual department at a big uh, tier one research institution is in that they put a very heavy emphasis on teaching. And, and I think that's part of the reason why um, Nancy Love was my undergraduate theory professor. I think that's part of the reason why she steered me to Minnesota so hard was that she knew that as well. Um, and so the rule was you couldn't teach until after you'd passed comprehensive exams. So that was usually after year three or four. Um, so, yeah, so I taught, the first course I taught was um, a course on political ideologies, which um, I'm teaching here now, uh, but I taught for the first time last fall here uh, in 2013. Oh. <laughs> so I taught for the first time in 1994 at the University of Minnesota. So it had been almost 20 years. Yeah. So as you were getting out onto the job market, mm-hmm. um, I mean, how do you end up at Bethel other than practice? Yeah. Um, I think the biggest reason, I mean, I, when I say I found my people in graduate school, it wasn't just the other graduate students in political science, although they were certainly part of my, part of my people. Um, and uh, just some some dear friends and people that I feel like um, kind of know what makes me tick. I I was just uh, on Facebook this weekend and um, found an, found another one of them for, uh, through a friend's link. And it was just, there's just some kind of essential connection with some of those po- folks. We just see the world in the same, same way. Um, so they, they were certainly part of that. But, but the other part of it was, was to be frank that um, I ran into the university grad group at the U of M um, and I, um, in terms of faith learning integration, um, I'd been uh, an active and faithful church member, but I went to a big evangelical PCUSA congregation as a kid, and it it suited my sister well. She was real active in the youth group and stuff. It did not suit me well. I, that uh, going back to the old soul point, mm-hmm. yeah, right. Um, youth group was not appealing to me. Uh, it replicated the 
sort of social structure of high school, which I found. So that, that I mean, that, that's sort of the, I guess the story of my early, uh, my late adolescence was sort of being in these environments of all of the, and then t- to pick a school like Penn State where that w- was going to all be replicated again. Right. You know, it's sort of like, right. why on earth did they let me do that? But they did. So, right. So there, there I was. So, and so church was like that too growing up. So in college, I attended uh, faithfully um, the um, Presbyterian Church in State College. Um, wonderful preaching um, there. But I wasn't really active in um, in any parachurch organizations or anything like that mm-hmm. on campus. Um, but when I got to the U of M, there was a great couple that were super energized and really good at what they did um, running the um, grad fellowship for university and a really committed core group of, uh, of grad students too. And, um, and that those, those were really my people. And it was really there that, um, that this sort of life of the mind, uh, kind of colliding with, um, with the life of faith, um, started to make sense for me. And really some, some people from Bethel that circled through there. I mean, Mary Ellen Ashcroft came and spoke to the chapter Hmm. and Dan Taylor and, um, and you know, Wayne Rosa and just, uh, Harley Shrek, uh, you know, they kind of blew my mind. It was like, oh my gosh, this, this makes, this, this is what, this this is what I've been looking for. These are, these are my people. Right. Right, Um, yeah. So, so it was that, that was, I think pretty, pretty formative, uh, for me, uh, hugely formative, um, and really important. So then it was like, huh, well, how does this all fit together? Do I, do I end up, um, you know, do I go to big state university and I end up being the university advisor at the big state university? Do I go to the elite liberal arts college where I've always wanted to go and I have to be sort of the weird Christian faculty member? Yeah, I was, yeah, I could, I could be up for that. I, I was used to being the weird one. Um, you know, not, not too super weird, right? I was, I, I was always I, pretty, I, totally, I, totally I was always pretty mean, conventional, yeah. you know, yeah. along the lines, but I, you know, I never won the popularity contest in these, in these highly competitive social structures that I found myself in. Right. I mean, you, yeah, you have a history of picking things that are going to put you a little bit out of step. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, um, and, you know, in terms of winning the conventional popularity game, yeah. you know, um, so, so I didn't, I thought, well, maybe that'll work. Um, I don't, you know, I wasn't really sure. I knew I didn't want to teach at a place like Grove City. My, you know, my, my folks had, had all come out of there and it was very, um, it was a very homogeneous environment, very ideologically homogeneous, which wasn't going to fly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that, that was kind of where I was. And, um, I, so I started kicking around the CCCU schools. A lot of the people that I love dearly as part of the university chapter, um, had done their undergraduate, um, degrees at some of the CCCU schools. Um, and so I would say, you know, Wheaton and Calvin were certainly places that I was really interested in. I had had some friends from high school that had gone to Wheaton. Um, but that, that was about all I knew. Um, mm-hmm. And then there were these sort of cool people from Bethel that had circled through the IV chapter that I was like, well, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty awesome. I wonder what's going on at Bethel. Um, so I went to the American Political Science Association meeting when I was on the job market. And um, there's a Christians in Political Science sort of sub-caucus of that group. Very small. Sub-caucus is putting way too fine a point. <laughs> it's about 40 people. Um, but they have a meeting at the annual meeting. And I and I went. Um, and... Um, Ran into Bill Johnson, who was then mm. the chair of the political science department here. So I had to go to San Francisco to, to meet him. And I, I'd been up here, I think, once or twice. Stephen Carter from Yale University came here to give a talk. And I'd come up here to hear the talk. And that was very interesting. And, uh, but, but really didn't know anything about, about Bethel per se. And, and certainly didn't think this was going to be a viable 
job opportunity. And I had irons in the fire at Calvin and Wheaton, and and actually then also at the Center for Public Justice, which is a think tank, a Christian think tank in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the direction I was going in. Then I got a job offer at a. Um, uh, secular uh, liberal arts college in Washington State uh, in Walla Walla, Washington Whitman College, lovely school, um, and uh, no one was getting job offers, and I turned it down because uh, there was nothing for my spouse to do in Walla Walla, Washington, and um, I came back, and and again, thank God, my advisor um, uh, didn't get angry with me because I some people I think would have just their advisors just would have shut shut them off after that if they mm-hmm. if they turned down it a tenure tech job. Um, it was, it was bad. It was, you know, the job market was bad. And so, um, the fact that she was still willing to work with me afterwards and kind of understood my, my reasons for things was, was nothing short of miraculous. Hmm. Um, and then I took the adjunct gig here at Bethel filling in for Bill Johnson's sabbatical and teaching in the, what was then the PACE program. It's the cap, uh, 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 adult baccalaureate completion program. Yeah. So, and I called my mother and told her I'd committed career suicide so yeah with, with no prospect there was no gig here i mean there was no so how did how, because i this is this i mean i was a student here at the mm-hmm, time like, how mm-hmm. did how did something open up I and mean, how does that how do you move from adjunct and pace to um to what you're doing well i adjunct and pace and sabbatical fill in because right, that's right, what right, i did right, right. so bill was on sabbatical and i taught his american politics courses um yeah um so this doesn't happen anymore um it, it's sort of shocking it happened when it did um but I, uh, I taught those American politics courses um, in the fall. And then they opened up an additional section. This was back when we were still opening up additional sections of things. Um, and they opened up an additional section of it in the spring. Um, and it filled. Um, and I taught it. And um, Trisha Brownlee, uh, who was then the dean uh, of what is now the College of Arts and Sciences, what was then just plain old Bethel College, um, called me in, in the office phone upstairs in the AC and um and said, um, we're going to be posting a job description that bears a remarkable resemblance to what you're doing. This is, I think, in April. Um, re- bears a remarkable resemblance to what you're doing. We hope you're interested in it, and we're not publishing it. So they posted it, honestly, on the bulletin board on the what's now that we call the CC second floor. There used to be a job posting bulletin board there. Hmm. And they... Um, they posted it with, you know, with like a, a thumbtack, you know, on the board. And... Um, and of course, there were no other applicants for the position. Um, and uh, then they, you know, they put me through the personnel vetting sure, vetting sure. process. So I went through the full, you know, campus visit, such as it was. And um, yeah, was that was it? Just because was PolySci growing that much? Um, there, or? I don't think PolySci was growing. The, um, there was a hope that they were going to grow the night program. That that was going to be growing, and then I. Think you know they had three faculty members who were all almost identical in age at the sure. time, and they were all in their right around sixty, I guess, when I started. Um, and uh, so the writing was on the wall there too, right? That mm. there was going to be a, a sea change uh, necessary. Um, and you know, I I was instrumental. I had I told myself every day I was on campus I was going to have lunch with somebody, right? And I did that whole first year. So I really did get to know people. Really did try to connect and uh, foster some. Some attachments for an adjunct. You mm-hmm. know, I, 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 I'm, I'm pretty social and pretty extroverted, so I, I was, you know, eager to meet people and people obliged, so it was very, very kind. But yeah, so, so I don't think it was growth so much as like, just trying to get out ahead of. 
yeah, I guess. So, so when you st- so were you were teaching American politics? Yes. Yeah. Um, which is back then was that a big Paseo course or was Paseo small? Enough oh, there certainly were Paseo students involved okay. in it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then what else were you teaching in that? I was teaching nothing else in the political science department. Okay. Well, that's probably part of it. Uh huh. Okay. Uh huh. And everything else was in the um, Pace program. Uh, okay. So, um, so I, I taught. Um, th- those were six six week modules that you just sort of cycled through one after the other. So, um, so I was doing that. And how was that? Um, you know, I took the job really as a leap of faith. I really felt as though, um, this is where God wanted me to be for a number of reasons. And, um, uh, but it, it, it became tedious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it did. Um, were you teaching the same course? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So just six weeks. Re- yeah. But but back. again, it was a sort of idea while you were writing a dissertation, too, because, sure. I, you know, I, I, I wasn't like I had to do a ton of um, course prep or, you know, those sorts of things. When, you know, once you had these in the bag, it was updating it, certainly. But um, but it wasn't um, it wasn't real demanding while I was sure. finishing up my dissertation. Sure. So when did the transition over to just. Bethel College. Well, that's CWC, right? Um, so I got a telephone call then about a year and a half into this from um, Neil Lettinga, who was then the CWC coordinator, saying, um, we, th- we think your talents are being wasted. Um, and uh, and they moved me into the CWC stable. So then uh, at that point, five-sevenths of my load was in um, – so load seven-sevenths. So for then five-sevenths of my load were in uh, the college. And okay. then um, – I cooked up an F course for J term, and then I can't I can't remember what the additional course was. Sure. But but at that point, you were it was, able to piece it together. at that point it okay. was yeah, yeah. So I did that for so I guess I did the pacing for about a year and a half or so. So so in, I mean, you talked about having some contact with folks from Bethel while you were at the mm-hmm, U. Mm-hmm. What were your impressions of Bethel when you got here, though? Like I mean, especially um, especially when you sort of were full time in the college. Yeah. Because it's very different than places you had previously. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Penn State is not a bastion of diversity. I mean, it's not. Penn State is, uh, for a big campus, is actually, I mean, it's it's in the middle of Cal, it's in a Cal town. I mean, it's in the middle mm-hmm. of nowhere. So that's been a long struggle at um, at Penn State is to um, increase the diversity of the student body. So, um, so it, in that sense, it wasn't. But compared to the U of M, uh, which again, as far as the Big Ten, Big 11, however many there are. It was the Big Ten. Uh, but, you know, U of M also is a pretty white campus, um, comparatively speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but certainly more diversity than was here. So I, I, I was struck by the lack of diversity here, um, uh, ethnic and racial diversity to be sure. Um, but then to go into a classroom and not have any liberals or what appeared to be liberals, sure. that was that was a big, that was a big shock. And um, how much, how much, this is somebody who doesn't teach policy, I asked him, it's like, how, how different is that in in a course in courses where politics are at, instead of like politics are really at the forefront of what you're talking about so what the students are bringing in in terms of their political ideas political ideologies political convictions like that shapes a, I would assume shapes a lot of kind of how you can talk about or how you as a group can yeah. talk about things yeah um you know, in the environments that I've been in, Penn State was, I think, politically more conservative, uh, and, and yeah, I mean that's verifiable than um, than the University of Minnesota. But you could at least expect that there was going to be some uh, the the proponents of students would be to the left of center. There there would probably be some conservatives in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of sort of where you where you were. Um, whereas here, um, 
I almost feel sometimes like you've got to protect the liberal student because mm-hmm. it's a, such a minority position here. Um, so that's um, that's been the switch over in the in the classroom in terms of. Uh, in terms of uh, identity stuff, um, it gets it gets weird. Um, you know, much much of the political science um, sort of textbook literature is written. Uh, you know, there's been this attempt to try to make stuff more attractive to students and make stuff more readable for students. So, some uh, authors of textbooks have kind of taken this you know crazy line where they want to over-identify with issues that they think are going to be appealing to college students, and they always pitch left on this stuff mm-hmm. and. Um, and so that's that. That's been. It was never an issue at the Obama Penn State, but sure. but it, it sure is here. So you, I sometimes I feel like I have to con- conduct a sort of conversation with the textbook. Mm-hmm. Um, and in service to ideological neutrality, which I, which is probably impossible to attain, but necessary to pursue. And mm-hmm. so that's that's sort of been my posture. Um, my posture with it. So yeah, it, it is. It is strange. Um, it's strange to be in that context. I, you know, when I look at a textbook, I'm always cognizant of the fact that you know. Um, you know, they'll talk about abortion rights. You know, as a as a uh, as a as a sort of matter of progress for um, for the uh, kind of gender rights agenda, and uh, you know, and and it's like, oh, you know, here I here I problematize that uh, in ways that I probably wouldn't have had I taught it at other places. Um, uh, and I and I say that not, I, and I don't feel at all um, duplicitous or hypocritical in saying that because I don't view my job as a faculty member to advocate for a particular position. I view my job to try to um, teach clearly and um, give students the perspective. They, they're responsible for the information. Information mm-hmm. they got to capture, but but help to give them the perspective that they need for making good judgments. And sure. so, and I think that that neutrality position is is part of it. How about the um, the? I mean, you also talked about with the university, like the sort of really thinking about starting to think about faith integration. Mm-hmm. Um, h- how does that that then reflect in terms of when you think about the classroom now? Yeah. Um, well, I've come a long way. I uh, you know I remember the first time I taught American politics, and I I felt like I had to take students through a tour de force of you know every. Um, deconstructing every, you know, aspect of the Constitution through Christian lenses and, you know, read every book that was ever written on a religion in the American Republic. Um, and uh, I actually had Dan Taylor's son in my very first American politics class, and he said sort of felt like a grad seminar in, uh, you know, religion in American politics. <laughs> so uh, so I've scaled back a lot. Um, you know, one of the one of the beautiful things about Bethel is how seriously we take relationships, and so I think that relational piece in the classroom has certainly been significant to me um, as I've approached teaching and thinking about faith learning um, integration. I also, you know, as I think about trying to inform citizens, which is much much of what I do in political science. I'm I'm not training political professional political scientists here. I'm training social workers and teachers and people that might be public servants or go on to do MPAs or MBAs for that matter. Um, you know, I want them to be able to um, to kind of look at our common life in particular ways, um, and to have a perspective on the common life that's informed um, informed by their faith. Um, so, I, I, I think that's sort of my mission statement. Uh, that would not have been my mission statement at twenty nine. You know, sure, uh, sure. yeah, yeah. Um, another thing that that um, that's interesting. I mean, we've talked a lot about political science. You also have taught a lot. I mean, you talked about in CWC in yeah. terms of the. The big gen ed, the big gen ed show, right, of right, right. Um, so I want to talk about that, and then I also want to talk about traveling with students because that's another thing that you've yep. done, mm-hmm. um, and I think those are those are two 
uh, very different experiences. One is a very large group of students, and and how do you do that? And and, and I will say, I mean, you do that very well. I, we, we've taught together for years in CWC, and um, your presence is a presence that I miss. In uh, I, miss, of a, I miss being there as part of a faculty team, but also as as part of as I think about kind of the lineup of people that we bring to students. You know, usually there's four lecturers in there, and. Um, I often think about okay, functionally, what is what is each one of us doing? But right, this is an archetype thing, isn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah. And it's like it's like oh, I, I sometimes feel like we need a little Stacy Hecht <laughs> in this, you know? Like, like it's um, yeah. But so so I'm I'm sort of curious your thoughts on on you know you haven't done it in a couple years, now, yeah. But um, your thoughts on on teaching a course like that, which is also a course for really for all of us or most of us outside of our particular areas. Oh, but for sure. Make it more fun. Too, yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. No, I well, I'm. I, uh, yeah, well, pretty early on, if you teach at a place like this, you figure out that you're not going to, you're not going to spend most of your time teaching the areas in which you're quote unquote an expert. And I, and I guess I problematize the role of the expert too. I don't, I don't know that I, uh, you know, what, what is the joke about, you know, so you sort you sort learn more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. Right. right and right. I, and that was not a fate I particularly wanted. And, and, uh, you know, I, as I said, I sort of took the, uh, uh, the kind of, uh, a very efficient path to my undergraduate education says to be frank, teaching a class like CWC has been wonderful for me because I feel like it kind of filled in the gaps um, and uh, sort of has given me that kind of classical education that I probably, you know, didn't get because I was so gung ho to sure. check off sure. boxes um, as an 18 year old. So, so that's been, that's been lovely to be a part of it uh, for those reasons. I think it's also for faith learning integration reasons. I, you know, as a faculty member to continue to teach that stuff at, it keeps it alive for you as you think about the work that you're doing in your own field and the teaching that you're doing in your own field. Um, uh, just, you know, just this semester I'm teaching, as I said, this American political ideologies class and, you know, keep going back and reminding students of, of folks we've talked about in CWC and it, this is where this pays off. This is okay. This is the payoff of that line of thought. This is the, this is where that kind of reasoning leads us, leads us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so it's been terrifically useful um, in that way. I think as a teacher, it's really good to get a chance to see the full cross section of the student body too. Which, mm-hmm. um, you know, in your in your field, you only see a narrow subset, and so um, th- that can be misleading and a little deceptive if you don't um, if you don't see the full full range of students that we've got here and mm-hmm. full range of experiences. It makes you a better teacher because you've got to figure out how to speak to audiences that you normally sure. don't have to speak to. And, and, you know, you get, you get lazy when you're in your own ghetto. Uh, you know, you, you can use the jargon of the ghetto. You can use the, what, the secret handshakes and all that stuff, you know, but, um, mm-hmm. but it, so it's, so it's good to kind of get outside your, your ghetto um, in that way and think about how you c- communicate. I, I'm, I guess I'm a communicator. I guess that's sort of something that I think I'm mm-hmm. I pretty strongly, um, want to be at least. And, and I think CWC has helped me be a better communicator because I've had to learn things that I don't know a whole lot about and then figure out how I'm going to transmit them to other, other people. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think another piece of the teaching on a team too, I mean, this, and this is where sort of that Bethel big sister part comes into is like you were situated at a, at a, at a nice spot of having been in that course for a while when I came into, I think about, I think about the people now who really kind of run that course and like you were there as we were coming in to yeah, kind of help some pretty big upheaval yeah, yeah to kind of help bring some continuity and and i mean i really think about both in terms of the role you played in cwc during that five or six year period of transition and then also in your department i mean that you, you talked about i mean you're getting hired because there were all there were three yeah then they all left me <laughs> right and, and, but then you've, you've essentially 
had the chance to or or been forced to build the yeah. build the faculty in the political science department and I mean, one of the things that that uh, the notes that I have here is just in terms of um, whether you do that I'm sure you do this consciously and unconsciously but just sort of nurturing faculty in terms of like helping a new faculty member figure this place out because yeah. if you're not I mean you talk about this all the time if you're not from here yeah. there's lots of stuff that just doesn't get explained yeah. you know yeah. and from here I mean from Minnesota from Bethel right. from the BGC right. and some of us bring some things that we're from here and other things that we're not um, right. and I think I don't know if that's something that you sort of consciously do or it's just part of your personality yeah. but I think that's some of it's both I, I mean I Barrett Fisher said something to me once I think is pretty true I, he and I have very different personalities but we're both pretty good maybe I should have been an English major uh, we're both pretty good at um, being able to adopt the kind of um, language rules of a context quickly um, he said you know anybody that does well in the verbal portion of the SAT has probably succeeded in doing this and so I, I was sort of learn, able to learn the language of this place pretty pretty fast and it, and it's sort of you know two degrees removed from my the church I grew up in you mm-hmm. know so I was I was certainly part of the evangelical movement sure. and kind of knew what the language of that movement was and kind of knew what to expect. Um, you know, about every other year, somebody would show up on these shores that had been through the churches in Pittsburgh that I'd been attached to or the ministries in Pittsburgh that I'd known about. Um, and I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, I do have a place here. I, you know, this is part of my story too. Mm-hmm. So so there was certainly that. Um, and then, you know, the... Uh, I was attracted to the strangers around here too. I mean, we've, we've opaquely mentioned Neil. I guess I mentioned Neil a moment ago, but Neil and Virginia Lettinga, who were you know pretty significant in um, habituating me. I, Kevin Craig certainly uh, played that role. John Lawyer, um, and they were all outsiders. They weren't from the from the fold, uh, and uh, and kind of taught me how to navigate a little bit. So, um, and I, these were people that I loved dearly, and and do and love dearly, um, and um, and so I think they set up for me certain expectations about what it took to pilot the ship and um and so whenever i you know sort of moved into those roles here um it was really significant to me that i was uh true to the legacy that they left independent of bethel's broader legacy Mm because i felt like their their contributions here were so significant and um and i knew and i knew what i valued i valued those uh Social capital. I valued um, being with people that wanted to be generators of social capital because I think that's what keeps places like this afloat. So um, I couldn't imagine hiring or or being with people that were going to be corrosive on uh, on that project. So I, I think that's why I love being part of a team. I like mm-hmm. uh, I I feel like I learn best uh, collaboratively, and when I'm with a bunch of bunch of people, um, I like brainstorming. I don't mind getting my ideas shot down, um, uh, and I I think. Uh, ideas can get refined through. I'm not. I'm not a big fan. I should amend that. I'm not a big fan of brainstorming. I think brainstorming is pretty ineffective. Um, I think you have to be in a context of people that you trust and care about, uh, and whom you feel confident enough around that you can say stupid things and have them tell you they are stupid things. I, I do think they are stupid ideas. Um, and if brainstorming is just about tossing out whatever's flowing through your stream of consciousness, it's, that's a pretty useless exercise. But if it's tossing it out and then getting feedback from people that you trust and respect, um, and you're not going to take it personally and you're not going to think they hate you or you're dumb, um, you know, that you can get some pretty great results. And so, um, so I've, I've appreciated that and, and, and that part of CWC and that, and that part of being a, a part, being a part of a department that's like that too. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, another, another note that I had that I don't really know what to do. I mean, I think of you as also part of my, um, 
my Bethel conscious too. Like um, as I as I go to meetings. If you're not, because we're in some meetings, we're yep. in the same meeting. But yep. if you're not there, I think, okay, what would Stacy say to what we're W-W-S-S. talking about? WWSS. Yes. No, but I mean, there's this sense of like, like you're you're pretty, ad- and this is kind of what you were just talking about. You're pretty adept at cutting to like, what are we really talking about? And let's talk about that. Huh. And you know, in, in that because that was sort of your response to brainstorming. It's like yep. we can throw a bunch of stuff out, but like, let's keep cutting at like, let's do that, but keep cutting at what are we trying to do. Um, and I think that's that's something that's been really helpful. Um, it's it's not something I'm particularly naturally good at, but I think about like, okay, well, we need somebody in this room who's doing that. Mm-hmm. And um, there are times when I try to do that if 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 there's not somebody else to do that. But I think that's just a really helpful um, a really helpful person to have in the room as I because I only feel like I only work with teams of people. And it's like right. that's one of those things that's really important. The person who can just say like, let's not lose sight of what we're really doing here. Right. I um. I think that's being a part of good grad seminars. I mean, right? I, you know, if you watch a good um, grad seminar teacher, right? That that's what they'll keep doing. Uh, you know, you'll let these side conversations happen, but you got to keep got to keep after what the main what's the main what's the main thing? What's the takeaway? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think that's how we function as human beings. And I, and I think I think you know, in, in a sort of broader sense, I you can you can lose the truth pretty quickly too. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I, I, I want to keep naming the main thing. Um, and that's, uh, and I could be wrong. I mean, I, I mean, I guess that's the other thing I, 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 I'm, I'm a little more assertive than the culture around here right. prefers usually. And certainly than the culture prefers for women. Um, so I think some people view me as abrasive, um, and I don't mean to come across that way. And I, um. I, I am pretty sensitive. I, my feelings do get hurt pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's that social trust generation thing. Like mm-hmm. I want to be in communities where I trust the people that I'm a part of. Um, but um, but I can take a hit, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and I do if it's coming from someone that I trust. And so I so I I think that that's a a good way to generate uh, generate better work. And mm-hmm. um, so I don't want to I don't want to be afraid to say. The emperor has no clothes. Um, right. If the emperor has no clothes, I mean, let's not sit here talking about what the emperor is wearing. If there aren't any clothes in the emperor, right? Let's just say it. There's no clothes. <laughs> All right. Um, the the then the last thing I wanted to ask you about teaching, particularly, is because mm-hmm. um, you've you've done a no- number of travel yep. situations with students, taking students to Amsterdam, taking students to China, right? I mean, how is that different than, um, or how do you think about that differently than you think about? those students in your American politics course? Yeah. Or? Well, I mean, you're teaching different stuff, right? I mean, it's, it's a totally different teaching mission. Um, and um, I, I, last night I was actually with a, um, I'm active in a, a Chinese American Association of Minnesota here. Um, I have a, an adopted Chinese daughter. And so um, we've been real active with this group for, gosh, nine or 10 years now. Um, and they're bored, they're, the annual banquet was last night and I was with some friends and we had a little episode we had to sort out. And it was one of those, one of those moments where by virtue of my cultural facility in the United States, I was able to kind of cut through what needed to happen for a Chinese friend. Um, which is not to say that the friend couldn't have solved the, the, the problem, but the kind of resources it would have taken to solve it. Um, not financial resources, but sort of, emotional, mental, sure. psychological resources would have, would have been so great. And I was just able to sort of slice, slice through it very quickly at, at very little cost to me and, and get things fixed. Um, and I want our students to have that awareness. So when I think about what I want to teach them when they 
you know, when we travel together is I want them to be disoriented and dependent upon someone. So they have to kind of cut through that, uh, you know, someone just so they can see what, what people have to cut through in order to be understood and to make meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that's the teaching, that's the teaching task is sort of, um, guiding them through disorientation, um, and, uh, and having them emerge without being, uh, despairing, um, or depressed or self-loathing. Uh, but, uh, but to, uh, to, to guide them through that experience. It's, it's a, it's an incredibly important experience. I, I, to graduate from college without having had that experience, I just, um, it's a it's a miscarriage of a, of education. It's one of those things that distinguishes a liberally educated person from someone who is not. That you just have to be able to have that profound sense of dislocation and alienation, and and have it intellectually, not just like I don't know how to get on the bus, like, mm-hmm. but like I don't know how to communicate, and it's not just because I can't speak the language; it's because I don't understand what the terms of this thing are. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can learn a lot about that by reading a book, by the way. I, I'm a big fan about reading books about places that you're going to travel to. Mm-hmm. I, I think that sometimes gets lost. We all become adrenaline junkies and we, you have to go have an experience somewhere. And before you go have an experience somewhere, it's a really good idea to do a lot of reading about where you're going. Um, and the people that you're going to find there and how they think and what makes them tick. But then there's going to be surprises sure. too. So. All right. Well, I want to wrap up with three questions that yep. I ask yep. everybody. Um, what is your name? What is your quest? What is your favorite color? As you think about, as you think about, if you if you were able to sort of design your ideal school or ideal curriculum, mm. you can answer it either way. What uh, what would it look like? I mean, you don't need to lay out the whole program, but like, what would what, what would what would you have in your ideal school or curriculum? I mean, a lot of it would look like would look like Bethel, right? I mean, a lot of it would look like Bethel. I, I mean, a lot of it would look like our general education uh, program. Um, in terms of forming persons, um, I think that 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 you know our our focus on creating a synthesis between um, the fundamentals of the, of the faith. Uh, and then thinking about what that demands for the fields in which people enter are really significant. I um, I have less vocational orientation and more um, more training in some of the hard skills that I think are. I I, I feel like we underserve math uh, tragically. Um, and I I if I could have you know f- political science majors that you know had a minor in mathematics you know and understood understood mathematics well. Um, I think they could go out of here and do just about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, th- those are some things I, I think I would change. I, um, I'd also, I, I, I'd love for these places to be tuition free, right? I'd love mm-hmm. for these places to be places that were, it's my idea school to be places where we didn't have to worry about, um, about filling seats to generate revenue, uh, where, and where students didn't have to worry about unbelievable debt burdens. Um, well, I even think, leaving. I even think of the way that would affect the students, like sense of, I need to work and I need to do, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I just would, I would, there are certain people I've, I, because of working in ass where I see people struggling here and I, we're, and, and not everybody, but some of them, like I know enough to know, like, Man, I'd love to see you do this without any of that external. Yeah, and I and I would say the other piece of it is it would be 100% residential. I, I'm a as I said earlier, I'm a big fan of the residential experience, and um, um, I want people whole in. You know, I want you here with both feet, both feet in the game, uh, right? And um, 
And so eliminating those external distractions for this, for this very small window of your, of your life. Um, I, I would like to like to be able to do that. I, you know, I'd love, uh, I, ideal institution would have the faculty living closer to campus. And it's, it's something about you that I admire very, very much is, um, your deliberate choice to live so close to campus. I, I'm as close as I think I can be, um, about four miles away. So I'm not too far away. Um, and that's huge. Um, and I, and I think in terms of fostering community, that's really significant. We, we don't like to think about geography and community these days. We like to think we can form community virtually with anybody anywhere, but geography still matters. We're still, Mm-hmm. We're still uh, these corporeal beings that we have to walk around in these sort of. Well, I'm amazed every time we have students over to our house. I mean, you know, you have students over a lot too. Like, mm-hmm. I'm I'm always taken aback by how. This sounds silly, but like like how how different it is for them to be in a home again, and like and just the way like I see their guards go down, and I see them. They get excited about things that are like that to me are very mundane because it's you're in a house and right, to right. be able to I mean, be able to bring students, uh, and I wish I did it more, but but to be able to bring students into that setting and say like, well, you know, the work we're doing together can happen here too in yep, certain ways. Yeah, you know? well, and they want to see how we live, um, and that's part of the learning too, uh, and, and that's exposing yourself in a way because I'm, I'm certainly not going to suggest that I live some kind of ideal life by almost any measure but um but it's one version of mm-hmm. how you can live a uh i think a uh an adult life that's desirous of seeking god's will and of trying to find um your place in the world that's um helping to accomplish it in some way yeah, yeah. all right two two last questions um if you could recommend a book um and it's not not recommending a book like this is the best book or this mm-hmm. is a book everyone must read but like there was a book someone could read that would help them understand who you are. What would you recommend? It doesn't need to be you entirely, but a portion of you or something about you. I like when I ask a question that you have to, you don't have an immediate answer. Yeah, I don't. Um, (laughs) Wow. Uh, okay, well, I'll just take. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna give you a cheap answer. That's fine. Kind of a cheap answer. Um, so, um, I had a meeting this uh, fall with Brett Heider, who's our new director of admissions, um, and he was my student uh, when I was first teaching here, um, probably 15 years ago or so. And uh, he said something to me after lunch, which which I which, which was really interesting. But he said, "You know, you're really funny," um, and. Um, and I think sometimes my students don't either don't get my sense of humor or maybe I'm nervous in the classroom or I'm boring or something. so. Um, so I was going to say sort of something that was written by David Sedaris, you know, um, that um, and Sedaris can be vulgar and I, you know, and there's lifestyle issues there, obviously, and stuff. But um, his vibe is kind of where I am. It's like that the things that he finds funny, I find funny, but there's a pathos in some of his writing, too. So. So in terms of a window into personality, like I, I think about his writing. Um, and, uh, and as I said, I, there, there's some real vulgar stuff in his writing that, and, and his act that I, you know, I certainly don't endorse or, or want to emulate in any way. But, but that sort of way of viewing the world, I think, is a window and into sort of what my sense of humor is. And I, I, I do find things funny in a very dark way, usually. Um, and so that, that's kind of the, I think that one of those pieces of who I am that doesn't get I, I think my colleagues feel that same way, but uh, but that 
So anyway, that's actually a very good choice. I, w- I wouldn't that would not something I would have said, but once you said it, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, like that. That un- it unlocks something. Well, the spiritual. I mean, the spiritual reading that I do. I love. I love Beekner. I, I get a kick out of Anne Lamott. I I like. Um, uh, and Annie Dillard's writing. I mean, you know, I've read, I've, I've, I've sort of read all these things, and they've all been meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. But you asked for sort of insight into yeah, what yeah. makes you tick, so I, I think I'd have to go there. So. And along those same lines, any other media recommendation? Media recommendation. So I mean, it could be another book, or it could be anything. Hmm. Um. I have been dogged out with spiritual writing a lot lately. I just have been kind of like, ugh. You know, I, there just hasn't been much new that I've sort of felt particularly captivated. I bought Anne Lamott's new book, and it was like all these retreads of stuff she's written before, and I was kind of upset about it. Um, but um, so here's what I try to do. I try to find ways to kind of keep juiced spiritually and plugged into regular Bible reading. And I sort of, I, you know, I'm always up for the book study at church. I always sign up for whatever that is, and I'm always doing the page a day, verse a day, whatever, you know, whatever mechanism tends to work. I'm doing a, a virtual advent calendar right now from the Methodist church that I, I kind of get a kick out of. Um, but, but in terms of regular reading, I read the New Yorker regularly, which I think is really good. I make sure I read the New York times book review section every week, um, just to kind of keep those things sort of, uh, in the life of the mind. I think, I think the challenge in evangelicalism is that we, t- you know, there's sort of this spooky suspicion of East coast media elites. And I, I don't find that to be um, particularly useful or helpful. Um, but the, but the challenge is I, I, I'm trying, I'm making an effort not to read as much short form media as I do. I'm a news junkie. I right. I read. Yeah. I, and I kind of have to for the public television gig sure. and stuff. Like I have to know what's going on. I, you know, I had to know what was in the blasted Cromnibus uh, last week, you know, cause I, that's just part of the gig. But um, but I'm trying to read some more long form essay, reflective style stuff. I, you know, there's only so many op-eds you can fill your head with. But um, David Brooks was actually interviewed this fall and had some some recommendations, and they're not on the tip of my tongue right now. But um, but uh, those are the sorts of things I'm trying to reorient my reading toward um, a little bit to to sort of be in a, a deeper, longer, sustained conversation rather than just kind of filling in the current events gaps. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for uh, for sitting down oh, with thank me today. You. This has been a delight. Yep, yep, yep. When we arrive, sons and daughters will make our homes on the water. We'll build our walls. Aluminum will fill our mouths. The cinema now